What's up and welcome to Difficulty Class. It's a podcast about all things Dungeons and Dragons. I'm one of your hosts, Allie Deitchman, and with me is... Trevor Bettis. That's right, and this week we'll be talking about pacing and backgrounds and backstory. Trevor, how are your games this week? God. <laughs> it's a good way to start. Um, um, so I, I said that I was running Storm King's Thunder. Uh-huh. You thought you were, huh? I thought I was. <laughs> that's my that's my that's me drinking wine right now because That's his wine pause. Yeah, because <laughs> things happen. It's it's good things. It's fun things. So my players are in Chult. Yeah. <sighs> that's not supposed to happen, by the way. Mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. <laughs> um so the, chronologically in Wizards of the Coast release and like how the story goes uh, Tomb of Annihilation takes place after Storm King's Thunder yeah and there's a thing I'm not going to go into detail there's a thing that connects those two yeah a, a thing maybe a person you know something yeah and I had that thing in the Tomb of Annihilation game and now that has become applicable in Storm King's Thunder <laughs> and they went well we need to go do something with that thing. Yeah. And they f- figured out that it was Chult. And so they flew there. <laughs> so, okay. To be fair, um, at the time of release, Storm King's Thunder, Tomb Annihilation wasn't a thing. Mm-mm. And that particular thing you're talking about, literally there's an entire paragraph in Storm King's Thunder that says, this might pop up in a future adventure. Mm-hmm. And then they left it at that. Yep. There was no uh, explaining about what happens if your players want to go investigate this. So I'm finding that out on the live. <laughs> yeah, so that's something that you kind of have to do yourself as a DM. And Trevor, you're doing, you're gonna, you're gonna do great. I, I hope so. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I realizing now that I'm like, okay, Storm King's Thunder's on hold. Uh, for this part, I'm, and now that like basically that. Tomb of Annihilation book is mm-hmm. just a toy box. Yeah. I'm going balls to the wall crazy with the stuff that I'm doing. Yeah, that's awesome. And I'm literally treating it as a sequel to my Tomb of <laughs> Annihilation game. The really cool thing is that two of the players in this game were in that game. So they know they pretty much know about it player wise. Yeah. yeah. But they're gonna they're gonna get to see with different characters what ended up happening with it and how it's going to be solved. <laughs> so like I'm excited about it. Like yeah, yeah I drink wide and I sounded <laughs> exasperated, but I'm legit excited about this because that was kind of what happened during the game is that I my I my head my face sunk into my hands and I'm like what what am I gonna do? And then I just went you know what let's have fun. The literal only downside about this is that you don't get to play in Storm King's Thunder yet. It's true. Um, I might be bringing some things from that book Well, what's hilarious Chult. is that Tomb of Annihilation allows for that to happen naturally. Mm-hmm. There's even a whole random encounter with giants involved. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not quite talking about those. If anyone out there listening li- listens to Dice Camera Action, I might be stealing something Chris Perkins did. Oh, see, that's just fun. Yeah. <laughs> Once again, I steal from Chris Perkins and love every moment of it. Allie, how's your game going? I actually had to pause both of our games. My uh, One of my players just got engaged. And so there was a very oh. fun uh, situation there of, well, just celebrating. And then uh, players were sick. And then we pretty much just had to, like, just carry on with that week. But did do the bookstore game. And that oh, was yeah, very Yeah, fun. that's true. That we did yeah. do that and it, it, it went well. Yeah, it actually went very well. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I actually had two evil characters in my party. Yeah, you told me that, and that yeah. blew my mind. <laughs> yeah, it was great. What, they're both kids, and one of them was like, 
okay, so for you, are you okay with an evil character? And I was like, uh, then he said, but I also respect the whole party. And I'm all like, oh yeah, sure. As long as there's no infighting with the party. Yeah. I'll totally allow it. And, and he was very awesome the entire time. He was very chill about the whole party. He's just like, hey, just understand, I'm going to get, like, real murdery in the middle of this. And I'm like, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> he was a hobgoblin. But then the other kid, uh, there was a wanty situation there. Mm-hmm. And he was like, no, 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 I literally hate everything. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh, no. But in the end... Uh, his character, by this player's choice, decided to leave the party and go on his own adventure at the end of our little mini one-shot. <laughs> and I even told him, like, listen, man, if this was a actual campaign where we were doing week by week, I would sit down with you, tell you what happens, and we'd make you a whole new character. But Because th- that's a really cool decision that you just made. And he respected that, and so we- it was very cool. I like that. Yeah. I like these little moments that come out of that, that bookstore game. Yeah. Um, well... Uh, let, let's hop over into to news. Uh, it's not really our news or stuff like that. It's actually from a news site. Aha. Uh-huh. I know. That's an actual article. An actual article. An uh, article came out this week from uh, Business Week uh, titled The Rise of the Professional Dungeon Master. Mm-hmm. I mean, appropriate for us to yeah, talk about. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, that, that was the thing when I got, when they're like, we're going to pay you to do this. I went, oh my God, I'm a professional dungeon master. Yeah. I can literally say, <laughs> I can put on resumes. I'm a dungeon master. I certainly will put on my resume. Yeah, yeah for sure. Uh, this one's talking about something a little bit different, and um, I don't really want to go over my thoughts about it. Um, I, I, if you're listening, I'd really love for you to go check out this article. Uh, like I said, it's uh, you can go to Business Week's Twitter. Uh, it's at BW. That's a great Twitter handle. Huh. Uh, and uh, you can find the rise of the professional dungeon master. And I'd love to hear what you think about. Uh, what's in the article. You can send yeah. that in to difficultyclass at gmail.com or tweet at us uh, at difficultyclass because uh, I'd really like to hear it. Maybe we'll talk about it in an upcoming episode. Yeah, definitely. Or we can even just have a conversation on Twitter too. That's true. Mm-hmm. They, they, they do stuff like that. Yeah. Like here. <laughs> Technology. But uh, going into our not big enough for a topic. Topic. Uh, topic. <laughs> uh, we didn't mention this in the beginning because, well... It's, it's not big enough for a topic. Yeah. Uh, this week we're going to be talking briefly about the Stranger Things starter set for Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, I you know I binged Stranger Things this weekend and then went well I want more Stranger Things and I realized <laughs> there were Stranger Things things to buy so I went and bought it um, yeah. and I've been thinking about buying it for a while but I hadn't been in the mood but you know you binge eight episodes in a weekend and you get in the mood. and you'll get there yeah yeah. Uh, so this, if you're unfamiliar and you can't see it, so I don't know why I said it like you could, uh, is a box set. Uh, it says Dungeons and Dragons Starter Set, and it's it's got the look of the red box, the like original yeah. one, um, but it has a uh, Stranger Things Demogorgon attacking Will. Uh, so a little little offset there. Mm-hmm. Um, and this comes with dice. Two Demogorgon figures, one painted, one unpainted. Right. Uh, a starter set rule book and an adventure that is written by Mike Wheeler. Not really, but you know. Um, and it's it's a cute little thing, but um, know that if you get this, <laughs> uh, its $25 price tag isn't for what's inside of it. Yeah. Um, it's for what's on the box. Yeah. Uh, the dice set um, is missing a die. Which is, we were just talking about that with the Essentials Kit. Yeah, um, the, it, the Essentials Kit has extra dice. This one has one less dice. The Essentials has 
three more d6, another d10 for the percentile die, and another d20. Yes, and this one is missing the percentile die. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, I guess isn't that big of a deal, but it's still good to know what you're going to be getting in normal sets. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's a little bit disappointing. Um, oh, I am going to amend something. The starter set does have a dice set. I think I screwed up in our episode about the Essentials Kit and said it didn't. Ah. It does have one. This one actually looks very similar to that, but I can't remember if it had a percentile die, but moving on. Um, the minifigures. They're, hey, it's a Demogorgon. Oh. It's it's a Demogorgon, and it, it, it feels you like can, it's a micro-machine. You can wave with it. Right. It, uh. is, it is such a, just a piece of rubber. It's not even, like, proper plastic. Oh, he's it's, doing the wave. Yeah, he is. Woo! And the, the, quote, painted versus not painted, if you turn them around for me right now, the only reason I can tell yeah, the difference... Hang on, hang on. Let's, let's, let's do this. Okay, let's do this. he's shuffling them, Wh which, and which he's one placing is which? them. <laughs> Well, that's not fair <laughs> because literally in the lighting right now, I can't tell. <laughs> I think the one on the left is the painted one. Well, so, my so, left. so this one, you, one. you're correct. Because you're correct. there's just a little bit of shading yeah. in the shoulders. Um, the one that's the, the, there's one in the box that has like its mouth is, has red on it. It's not, I'm not going to say it's painted. It has red on it. It has red on it. Um, but it's like, I am going to paint this and I'm probably going to retouch up this one. The only issue is that it's such a flexible plastic is that you can't use regular acrylic on it you're gonna have to use the primo like model paints for it because they will crack oh. with how flexible it is that's what i have right yeah okay with your with your starter kit or paint you you have it okay we'll go over painting minis at some point which is a very yeah. visual thing for an audio show but yeah so like the the minifigures themselves I, when I took them out of the box, I'm like, oh, why? Like, even the base that they're on is bendy. Oh, jeez. So, it's a taco. You just made it. <laughs> yeah. And, it, but again, like, it's a Demogorgon, which is cool. I do yeah. like the Demogorgon. Um, one thing I'm going to, I'm going to sneak some positive stuff in here. The binding on these little books is really nice. It is oh. actually uh, woven. Oh, neat. And so these notebooks hold up really nice in a weird way it yeah. kind of feels like a composition book where it's like <laughs> it does which uh the mike wheeler one is supposed to look like yeah uh also the rule book has a stranger things font oh and that's look cool to it, which is kind of neat but it's again it's just the same information i was gonna say it's the same starter book essentially as... but there are stats for a demogorgon oh see that's just cool yeah that is cool because uh, spoilers the, the demogorgon is in the adventure that's neat so is it like the Stranger Things Demogorgon? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, um, you could probably figure out why there's a Demogorgon and what place you may go to in <laughs> this adventure. Right. But, so the adventure itself is cool looking because it looks like it's a composition notebook. It's got a hand-drawn thing on it. It says, Hunt for the Thessal Hydra. Uh, and it says, a D&D campaign by Mike Wheeler. Um, and the inside is looks like a notebook. It's got lined pages, oh, and it looks so like neat. handwriting, and all of the artwork looks hand-drawn. It legitimately looks like it was made with love. Yeah, but the thing is, though, is that this is a one-night adventure. Yeah. I could run this in going fast two hours, taking time four hours. Yeah, so it's kind of less a starter kit, more of a well, I would one shot. Say, I'd almost say that this is the most starter of starter because you literally start and that's, and that's it. It. <laughs> um, it doesn't really give you much to go off it of. It doesn't. So. 
and the, there are pre-mades in here which are cool and you know they're they're the they're supposed to be based on the kids okay um so like you know they have a hill dwarf entertainer bard for dustin and stuff like mm-hmm. that which is cool um but that's all there is in it and this thing costs the same price as the essentials kit yeah i mean like the essentials kit recently came out and this has been out for i think maybe a year no 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 this How came out this um out? oh god may oh wow so it hasn't been that long yeah. so i don't it's i would not say it's for that price point no that i i i don't like that they say starter kit on it i kind of wish that it had been this box minus that because this is really good for like us to grab and just play with friends that are interested in Stranger I was Things. Just gonna say that it's more like a board game than a D and D starter kit. Which is funny because it has two figurines on it and no maps. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah. Um. So if if you like Stranger Things, pick it up. Why not? Yeah. But know that this isn't. You're you're paying for the name of what it is. And not what's in the box. Maybe if you want to kind of gently get a friend who's really into Stranger Things, yeah. heavily into D&D, this is a perfect gateway drug. Yeah, that, that's, a, yeah that's a good <laughs> one. I like that. Because, yeah, I mean, but as a starter kit itself, probably not. Mm, no. Yeah. But that is our short, not a topic topic. Yeah. Uh, but we have an actual topic. Definitely. Well, we have two of them. <laughs> um, our first topic is going to be about pacing. Yes. Um, now, I'm, I'm talking about pacing in several different ways here because there is the pacing of a campaign, mm-hmm. there's a pacing of a session, then there's like pacing down to moment to moment where you're not, you don't even have it written down. Yeah. So I kind of want to take like a look at each one of these and go over like some elements of what you can do to help with pacing or even just do pacing because I'm going to be honest. None of this, I, I didn't do any of this when I was DMing 4th edition. There's literally a, a bullet point I wrote down on these notes that I went, yeah, I did that. That's uh, that's not good. Yeah, no, I, I completely understand. And this is something that kind of comes with experience too, I feel. Um, not necessarily like any amount of prep work could just fall short based off of what the players choose to do and what happens. Mm-hmm. But this is just something that kind of you'll well, get better at. <laughs> I think the moment to moment one is where the player stuff really comes in. Yeah. Because when you're plotting out the idea of a campaign, there's, you know, you kind of have your tentpole moments, your, your your big set pieces. Yeah. And knowing when to do these, not just even where, like, how many sessions in or how long you guys have been playing, but, like, what comes before and what comes after these big moments is a big thing for pacing. No, that's definitely true. So let's sit, let's take a look at this. Um, so like I said, big set piece moments. So let's say that you are plotting in your head. You're like, you've got the opening part of it. Uh, let's say you're doing Lost Minds of Fendelver. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you start off with that and you do the Black Spider. Yeah. That's, that's a big moment in that campaign. Oh, yeah. That's where that one comes to an end. Uh, now, after that, you're going to do, let's say you're going to do a homebrew. So... You've got an idea of like, okay, I know where this is going to end. You got that big moment there. 
and you see a few things that need to happen. They need to get this weapon. They need to kill this thing. They need to do that. Mm -hmm. So those can be like your points on like a, a crazy person's <laughs> su suspect map. Right. <laughs> and you're pulling the red string in between it. Now, the lead up to these, and this kind of fits into what you're talking about with the villains. Like you need to have a setup for it. Yeah. If you just suddenly, you know, they're in this dungeon. Why are we in this dungeon again? Oh, I don't really remember. And then it's like, oh, it's the weapon we need to kill the bad thing. It's like, well, okay, but no one told us about that being here or anything yeah. like that. There's no sense of... And the investment into that concept yeah, of being no in that investment. dungeon. Yeah. <laughs> um, so setting that up before they even get into the dungeon is going to be good. And then afterwards, when they get that item, if it's going to be something they use they need some time to figure that out. And it, I think that should be more than just, hey, let's just try it on the next combat. Yeah. Um, if you give them time to figure it out and study it and stuff like that, they're going to have a better appreciation for that item, this really important thing that you've built up in your head. And now you're, you're wanting your players to build up in their head. You need to give them the chance to. Yeah. Because, like, you just give them a lightsaber and they cut off the head of the next goblin that comes like, oh, that's really cool. I don't know what your players sound like that, but <laughs> they do in this part. Um, but like if that lightsaber is like an ancient magical item that has so much history to it. That needs to have significance. That needs to have significance. It needs to have actual weight to it. Yeah. Weight is the best word. Yeah. Yeah. And But let's say that you're going further on and they're facing down, you know, some not the boss boss but just something big like even in storm king's thunder if you face down some of the the bigger giants and stuff like yeah. that you need to know who they are but after you defeat them give them a chance to you know go like oh my god we did that or even just give them a chance to witness what the repercussions yeah what happens after they took a big boss down because i mean like in most D, &D worlds even homebrew ones things aren't static. Like what yeah. happens with the players isn't just a tiny little bubble. Like mm -hmm. what they do creates ripples. It, it makes things happen. And so giving them a chance to witness what happens because they did a cool thing mm -hmm. kind of allows for that impact to settle in more. Yeah. And uh, one of the podcasts I listen to is writing excuses because I just, I love hearing those people talk about story structure and mm -hmm. characters and stuff. And I don't remember the episode and I don't quite remember the quote, but the, essentially it was, the most important part of the climax is what happens afterwards. Yeah. Because your characters have to come to terms with what just happened. They have to process what just happened. And that's what's going to make that a lasting moment, not just for the world you're in, the characters you're playing, but the players themselves. Yeah, I, mean, I didn't even think about that before, but one of my favorite book series actually doesn't do that. And now I just realized why the endings of the that series, and there's like 20 books out now, always bothered me. Mm -hmm. It's because it's like, oh, it's this huge buildup. This entire book is building up to this last moment, and there's only five pages left. Wow. Yeah, and that last five pages is a chapter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, here's the wind down. Yeah. This is what happened after. Well, um, like, I've, I've done, I've had campaigns and where the last thing happened and I just kind of give a recap of what happened afterwards. Yeah. And I like, I did that for my star Wars game and people from that group remember things that happened during the fight, 
but they can't tell me what fully happened and what the repercussions were of it. Ah. But, uh, you know, you go to Strahd and you guys... I, you guys killed Strahd, and I think we still played for 40 minutes after that. <laughs> we straight up had an entire funeral, and then maybe another one afterwards. Yeah. And then we we even talked about what our characters each did afterwards, mm-hmm. too. And that was kind of on the players' our own volition. It wasn't yeah. like, oh, and what did you do? It was like, oh, no, this is what we did. Yeah. Because we kind of, one, we needed that wind down because it was a very high, stressful situation. Mm-hmm. But... It was it was almost like it was almost natural to say it like and, after that huge thing. And that was like I'm not gonna say that I orchestrated that because I didn't, mm-hmm. but that was good pacing. Like that paced out that session so well yeah. that y- everyone there remembers what happened because oh, yeah. they had a longer time to process what happened with it. And going down to us the session pacing like. Having sessions that are specifically meant for that is, I think, a really good thing. If you did the big heist or whatever, it shouldn't just, at the end of that one, oh, well, actually, something bad happened now. (laughs) Which, you know, I like doing cliffhangers and stuff, but let them have that moment to succeed. Yeah. Let them feel like they got away. The next session starts. They're celebrating. You get halfway through that session and then something bad happens because of the heist. Yeah. You need to let them experience that moment to make it even more crushing when it means something bad happened. I mean, like, I know we're talking about session to session at this point, but I'm... For example, the worst thing you can probably do is... That's one reason why I stopped kind of watching Supernatural, the TV show, Mm -hmm. is because... In one season, they'd have this huge buildup. That's what the entire season was about. And then they, they they dealt with the thing. But then in the same episode as the finale where they dealt with the thing, they introduced a new thing. Yeah, I, I watched that. I don't remember what season finale was, but I watched that with you. And I went, what just happened? And it kind of made the last thing feel not significant at mm-hmm. all because all of a sudden there was this bigger, badder threat because that's what you have to do in television, yeah. especially in a show like that. It's like, well, the next thing can't be just as bad. It has to be worse. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of applied to like going by session too, mm-hmm. is you can't just take down a boss and then introduce something better or worse, so to speak, yeah. in the n- same exact session because the players won't have a chance to realize the good they just did. Mm-hmm. Or if you're playing an evil campaign, yeah. the good for them they just did. Yeah. <laughs> But doing doing stuff like that, I I think is going to really help with pacing. Like doing the having that session to let them yeah. breathe. Um, you know, I I love when there is a big moment and then the next session dice don't even get rolled. Uh, in my Neverwinter campaign, mm. that happens nearly after every single boss fight, and. I even can tell when my players and slash the characters are stalling because they're worried about the next fight. Mm -hmm. And so they're almost building it up themselves. And so there's entire sessions before a boss fight. Yeah. (laughs) Not just like, oh, the usual prep, getting to stores and stuff, but they're also just talking with each other and figuring out what they want to do. And like those ones are totally fine. You can go in with notes on it, Mm -hmm. but they don't have to happen. Like, I, I I don't think planned combat needs to happen in every session. Yeah, no. The players will the players can find their own combat. Trust me, they can. <laughs> 
but you don't have to be like, oh, well, I don't really have anything cool happening in this session, so I should throw some combat in here. No. You don't have to do that. Yeah. Because combat is not going to give them time to breathe, not going to give them time to reflect. So... I mean, especially if you throw in like, a, oh, here's just an easy combat just so we can roll dice. That means literally nothing. Yeah. And I've, and I've said before that not every combat has to mean something. But in this term of pacing... It's just going to grind things to a halt. It will. It really will. Um, and your players will just sit back and get on their phone because why are we here right now? Yeah. And and this this one, this is the bullet point where I'm like, this is what I did. If you have a format for your sessions... And you basically do that format mm-hmm. every session. That gets really repetitive. And yeah, it's true. Yeah. Even if different stuff is happening, in this session they went into a, a zombie lair and found an alchemy or like a, a wizard's den, and they killed the ghost or whatever. And in this session they went into the Feywild and they did stuff. But if that can all consist of RP at the beginning, combat, combat combat resolution mm-hmm. and you do that every time because that's pretty much what i did through fourth edition oh yeah i see what you're saying yeah like i look back on that and i'm like what the heck was i thinking <laughs> that yeah i can see how that can that would totally get just super repetitive yeah and, and even if it's, if it's totally different locales yeah you'd still be doing the exact same thing. You'd still be doing the exact same thing. Like, the rooms would be different, the monsters would be different, but if you just have that bare-bones structure of roleplay, combat, 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 roleplay, that's it. Yeah. That's all there is. And you need to mix stuff up to have pacing. Mm -hmm. You're not going to have that moment to let people breathe if you've planned three big combats for every session. Yeah. (laughs) That gets tiring in itself. Yeah. And... (laughs) I'm not saying that everyone listening to this is doing that, uh, but I'm saying that if you are, know that I did that and think think of some other stuff. I mean, like... <laughs> I wish this podcast could go back in time and I could hear that. <laughs> <laughs> Easy examples would be, like, if you are mid-encounter and all of a sudden the boss hears a player say something that's totally, like, against the, the boss's personal thing, the boss could take a moment and maybe try to talk to the players. Mm-hmm. And that would immediately break that combat, oh, to, yeah. combat to combat feeling. Yeah. Um, what, one of the, the notes that I have in here is that like combat doesn't have to go to the death every time. Yeah. You can change pacing simply by changing how a combat ends. Which is why I think Waterdeep Dragon Heist kind of lends that way a lot, right? I was actually going to bring up uh, Waterdeep for some of its poor pacing. Ah, yeah. yeah. I've heard about that, but... I was talking about like how the combat itself, because we were talking about Storm King's Thunder about how they kind of motivate the DM to not let it be a full fight encounter mm-hmm. every encounter because chances are the players won't win. But I was wondering about that for Waterdeep. For Waterdeep, like there aren't a lot of planned combats. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one at the beginning, and um, after that, you just have the monster stat blocks and see what yeah, happens. You just, yeah, kind of. Um, they're like they even say like hey these villains you shouldn't let your players fight them <laughs> they're gonna get destroyed right <laughs> um so Waterdeep is a different kind of pacing thing but let me go over this last thing and yeah. then we'll talk about Waterdeep real quick because i do think it's a good point of reference for this yes so the moment to moment pacing the reason i say this is because you could have your best laid plans and all of that stuff, but if the players are getting stagnant, if they're not 
looking like they're having fun. If it, yeah. it, it, you can change the pacing of what's happening in that session to get them back into it. Mm-hmm. Let's say that, you know, you're like, okay, well, you guys are going to have to travel like really far to do this. <laughs> and it's a thing that you've written in the story and you just get groans at the table. Generally, yeah. I um, mean, Tomb of Annihilation mm-hmm. is notorious for their travel system. Yeah. <laughs> and there's an entire way to do travel in that book. But both you and I have found that kind of uh, muddling over it. Well, <laughs> we'll, we'll take, take this for example. Like, Granted, I got blindsided by this development. But when they were like, we want to go to Cholt, I looked at the map and I'm like, that is going to be such a long travel time. Oh, yeah. Like, that's going to be like three months maybe. Yeah. And I went, you know what? We're going to skip over all of that. If you guys wanted to have stopped in a city and buy stuff, you can do that. Mm-hmm. But we're going to say that those three months happen. Yeah. And no one had a problem with it. It didn't ruin the story. It didn't break the immersion. It just... It got them to where they want to it go. It was the montage in the movie that showed them that yeah. they got from Australia to America. Congratulations. Because I will tell <laughs> you this. No one is going to look back at a campaign and be like, man, those travel sessions. <laughs> those travel sessions, yeah. they were really good. Yeah. And you brought up Tomb of Annihilation, and I ran Combat Raw out of that book. And I keep saying Raw. If you don't know what that means, that means rules as written. Um and I tried it out for two sessions, and my players went, we hate this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I went, oh, okay, um, let's try this again next week. So when we came back, I'd had, I had a whole different way of doing it, where instead of doing random tables and random stuff like that, I just painted a story with words of what they, what they were going to, and then I dropped in things that they, we, you know, we, I would stop talking and go, okay, now you guys are setting up camp. Yeah. Who's doing what? And this would lull them into like, oh, okay, we're just going to do this real quick. But then I would have something happen. I'd have a Chewinga show up. I'd have Hag show up. I'd have something happen that I'd already planned out to happen. And also I handpicked the things that I was like, okay, this is going to foreshadow to there later. Right. Because there are plenty of stuff in that book that foresh- that can foreshadow. Which you should make But it's on a random table. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not very... Uh... Yeah, so no, I, I 100% agree with so kind of I, picking I, out things. I pulled that mechanic out and instead changed it to pacing. Mm-hmm. And that totally helped with doing that campaign. Oh, yeah. But Waterdeep, and I kind of wish that I had, I had the book here, but um, they the, the first chapter is an, a small adventure. It gets them going. It gets them to a plot element. And, and the hook that gets them to the actual book. Yeah. And then <laughs> chapter two is really vague and it kind of just says this amount of time needs to pass oh and that can be problematic because for instance my players like i was like okay i need oh i don't know three ten days to go by they started playing every day. Oh, yeah. Where I'm like, okay, uh, I, okay, so uh, three days pass, and someone will go, oh, no, 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 I wanted to do something the next day. <laughs> yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean. I mean and, that happens to me so much. And so I think my three ten days turned into five days. Yeah. Um, and they have stuff that you can do where, like, they can join factions, and here's some missions. 
But those missions are a sentence. And they're supposed to kind of happen hand wave saying, okay, you did that. <laughs> well, no, like they want you to go do it. But, but it's leaving up help. to the GM or the DM to do that part. And when you, you know, you've bought a pre-written book, you're kind of expecting everything that, you know, the book wants you to do to be in there. Yeah. And so it was kind of blindsided. I got, I got blindsided when it was just like, where's the adventure? And they're like, <laughs> your imagination. <laughs> and I'm like, I have a full-time job. I don't have time for that. <laughs> this is why you bought the book. This is why you bought the book. Um, <laughs> And one of the number one complaints I see on the subreddit, because by the way, real quick plug, there's almost a subreddit for every pre-written adventure. Oh, really? And I love all of them. Oh. And the Dragon Heist one is freaking great. But the number one complaint that I see on there is chapter two, where like new DMs get in there and like, what do I do? Like, how do you even get the players into this? Yeah. And it's like, okay, so they got this thing and I don't have any plot elements from the future part of the story coming in yet. What do I do? And I, I've straight up seen people go, skip it. Yeah. Skip chapter two. And I feel like there's a lot of good stuff in there because, like, my players joined the Greyhands and that became a massive plot point Huge. throughout the entire yeah. part of this adventure. Um, and then, but right after that, when you get into chapter three, bang, off to the races. Like, the, the plot just starts going and you can't <laughs> stop it. Literal bang, yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> so... It is really weird how this starts off down here, dips all the way down, and then comes up so high for the ending that that one chapter feels really out of place. Yeah, I mean, it, something akin maybe to the murder house in Strahd. Oh, I, I, That's an entirely that different yeah, thing entirely, yeah, but it, where it kind place. of felt not really right yeah. for that book pacing. Mm-hmm. And really, like, what all this boils down to is I feel like you should look at these points that you feel is that lull and find a way to make them interesting. Because if something big and dramatic had happened before that chapter and that was the aftermath and them trying to get back to normal before the big thing happens, (laughs) that would have been a good way to get the players into it and stuff like that and led them into more adventure. Yeah. So basically what I'm saying is let them have moments, let them breathe, but also change stuff up when you need to. Yeah. We keep saying this, but read the table. Yes. No, I, I feel like a, this, this podcast is going to be called difficulty class colon read the table. Um, you need you do need to go with what your players want. Yeah. Um, and if you get a bunch of groans at travel, hand wave it. Yeah. You can even say like if you're as long as you're not doing XP, I get that. Some people don't XP, I don't understand you. But uh <laughs> no, I understand you. Uh, but like if you're not doing XP and there's a travel part and you get a table of groans, hand wave and just say, You okay. guys traveled that distance, you had some combat and some difficulties here and there, but you got through it. I mean, like, even if you are kind of like a stickler for actually going from point A to point B and what happens in between, you can actually give players magical items that can circumvent the Mm -hmm. physical travel aspect. I mean, I literally gave my players a cloak that sends them directly back home. Mm -hmm. And they use it constantly. And it helps the pacing of my campaign out so much. Yeah, because you literally go from Icewind Dale to Neverwinter. Yeah. And And if they were going to do that all the time, it would take forever. Yeah. I mean, that's... That's probably my only gripe with Storm King's Thunder is that it, they expect you to spend so much time 
in the Sword Coast, like the Northern Sword mm-hmm. Coast, that without like that magical item that I gave them, it would have taken so much longer. Yeah. I probably would have skipped a good chunk of chapter three. Yeah. But instead, I got to have fun with it, and I hand waved the <laughs> the traveling quite literally. I think what we're trying to say, sorry to say, is traveling sucks. Uh- <laughs> But uh, traveling can be fun, but if your table feels like it's just like the groans, if if the table feels like it's not going to work, then that right there tells you the pacing is going to suffer. Well, um, think about Tyranny of Dragons, the caravan part. Mm-hmm. I did that over one session, and even though it was traveling, I skipped to the important parts. Yeah. And I felt like that session actually ran pretty well, like, out of the first book of Tyranny of Dragons, I feel like that one worked the best. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and the the reason for that is, like, think about, like, a book. You don't spend every moment with the main character. It's just <laughs> like, oh, and then they finished their conversation. Three hours later, he was in his room. You didn't see him get up out of the table and go to the door and walk Excuse out and himself. say hello to the neighbor and, and feed <laughs> his cat. You you just skip to the important part. Yeah. And for when it's coming to travel, and I feel like travel could be like one of the biggest things against pacing, is you don't need every moment in there. Yeah. I mean, like you can even use travel as a way to set up the setting. Like you could say, okay, uh, you're on this ship. And so you've been traveling for a month and ahead of you, you see these icebergs and they're towering over this huge ship that you're on. And beyond it, you see even more. You can start describing things, but before you know it, you skipped the the tedious part the mm-hmm. thing that would have grinded your game to a halt for possibly more than just one session and you're now introducing the next thing yeah. and you use the traveling as a setting device almost uh to set that up mm-hmm. i mean like because i that's what i do literally in every travel point in tomb of annihilation i describe what they're seeing to set up for the next day because mm-hmm. otherwise it would just be Okay, just mark off that you did your insect repellent and going on the next day. <laughs> I had them buy so much stuff in Port 9 Zero. Never used it, but didn't even care. <laughs> um, but I think we got to end that topic there because we're going on a little long. Um, but if you have any more questions about pacing or anything like that, you can send those into difficultyclass at gmail.com. But that's going to lead us into our DMs Guild Spotlight, which has to do with pacing and with Waterdeep. Perfect. Uh, while doing Waterdeep, I stumbled upon a DMs Guild uh, thing of called Greyhands. And I, w- I did it mostly because I wanted to know more about the Greyhands and ended up that this was part of Waterdeep. This, uh, this person, uh, v- how do you say his name again? V- Valer? Valer. Valer. Uh, Valer RPG uh, has done this uh, for almost all of the factions in Waterdeep. You can go by the faction you want, and it has all of those quests that were a sentence into two or three pages. Oh, see, that's perfect. And it has, like, all the stuff you need in there to just run it real quick, have a nice little one-session adventure, and you're good. And I did this for... I. They didn't end up doing all of the missions for Greyhands, but for the three that they did, this was so helpful. Oh, yeah. Because, I like I said, I didn't have the time to write these myself. Yeah. And so finding this was like, uh, just, oh, man, it, it was weight off my shoulders. He's the hero you needed. He was the hero I needed. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, you can go, uh, you can find it on DMs Guild uh, under Grey Hands. And uh, you can also follow him on Twitter. Uh, his, he's uh, at RPG uh, V A L E U R. 
So, however you want to say that. Yeah, however you want to say that. <laughs> uh, so go over there. Uh, if you're running Waterdeep, check it out and you know give him a follow. Say, awesome. hey, you write yeah. cool stuff. And check out his other stuff too on DMs Guild because I just glanced at it and I'm already going to go and buy the map yeah, we, for, for Storm King's Thunder. We might have, he, he might pop up a few more times on DMs Guild. <laughs> yeah, because that, that looks really cool. Yeah. But uh, Allie, what's our, what's our next topic? Our second topic of today's episode is backgrounds and backstory. Mm. Uh, both are kind of intertwined and belong with each other, so I figure why not? Yeah. But um, essentially, kind of wanted to start with saying there's usually a few types of players, and I know the DMG kind of lists them out, but something that they don't mention is the type of player that gives you a 13 page backstory on Facebook and they say can you read this please and you can't see it but I have my hand raised and uh, I love them they're great <laughs> I appreciate them and the 40 minutes I spend reading their backstory because it's great um, for a DM it's, I'm giving the just the the pacha meme mm -hmm. very nice <laughs> very nice and it's just it's so good but there's also the player that shows up with their character sheet and that entire second page of the character sheet is blank. <laughs> There's no backstory filled in. They don't even have the hair color, eye. They don't even have their age. It's just they have that front page and the spells filled out mm -hmm. as full as can be. But they just, there's nothing, there's nothing there. And also, that's fine. Um, players, it depends on how they are as a player. I mentioned the DMG section where it says, oh, there's different types of players. Well, some players really are combat focused. And if they are that combat focused and your group is combat focused, then well, maybe that's totally okay. Mm -hmm. But if you find yourself in a group where like four out of five of the players are role play heavy, then maybe that fifth player needs some help filling out that second page. And well, today we're gonna kind of talk about how you can mm -hmm. help them, both as a DM and how you can do that as a player too. The, I, I'll say this. This is why Session Zero is such a good thing. I love Session Zero. I, I have an episode back in uh, Dungeon Driver about Session Zeros. And I, you know, I, think, I, I think it was like 15 minutes long. Mm -hmm. But um, these, this sort of situation is why they're so important and why I think that you should really try to do them is because you don't know what... Even if you've been playing with these people... For years, you don't know what character they're going to bring. They could be like, you know what? I decided to do something crazy this time, and I'm yeah. a completely non-combat character. <laughs> I decided to make a pacifist. Uh, in my Star Wars game, one of my players was like, I made a politician. And I went, you're oh. on a ship full of smugglers, bounty hunters, <laughs> and a combat medic. <laughs> what? And he's like, yeah, you know, we'll make it work. <laughs> um, All right. <laughs> yeah. So... If, if we had done a session zero, and granted they came in the middle of a campaign, but if we'd done a session zero, I feel like they could have been a more cohesive group. Yeah, for sure. And session zeros are so great because it helps you build up their backstory. So there's two things. There's backstories and backgrounds. We'll mm -hmm. get into the difference of those. But mm -hmm. like the background is the technical aspect of it that's related to your character stats. And the backstory is where your character came from. So just to kind of clear that up, uh, Session zeros are great for backstories because they can help you if you're writing if you're running a pre-written campaign, they can help you tie in the characters mm -hmm. to this pre-written campaign. Like Storm King's Thunder, they just suggest someone no giant, maybe. That would be helpful. 
And Three out of four of my players. <laughs> exactly. And so uh, you could just have, oh, yeah, they just know Giant has one of their languages. Or you could find out why mm-hmm. they know Giant. You know, is it because it's who they are as a person, that, that they're a Goliath maybe? Or did they uh, hang out with these people that only spoke Giant for some reason? You know, it's like it's it's good to tie people into the back, into use their backstory to tie them into the campaign. And the importance of session zeros really kind of boils down to that, but not to mention, you know, party composition and all that. Yeah. But like, um, like you, like, let's talk about the, the, well, I'll talk about the, uh, the golden pals, my, my water deep group. Yes. Our session zero, um, people were making their characters and stuff, but I didn't hear a lot about their backstories when they were making them. I didn't hear anybody saying like, oh, I'm doing this because of this. Mm-hmm. And so like, I was, I very much said like, so does anybody have an idea of their backstory? And they went, no, all of them. <laughs> well, uh, and, how many players were new to the game? Um, one. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, that was my sister. And so I had the, I already had the idea to help with her, but I went, you know what? Let's try this out. Um, I pulled out Xanathar's Guide. Yes. And it's got a whole bunch of charts in there that you can roll for a backstory. There's literally an entire chapter in Xanathar's Guide devoted to helping you build up your character, who they were before your background, so to speak. Uh, I I literally did the same thing just a few weeks ago Mm -hmm. with my Session Zero. Um, Brand new player. She had never touched Rolly like D&D dice before or had known anything about it. She's never seen a stream or anything. And so I sat down with her and the two other players who have played D&D before. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, listen, guys, I want to kind of go through Xanathar's Guide. If you already got an idea for your backstory, you don't need to worry about this. But if not, and granted, all three of them were like, yeah, let's go for it. And it was cool because by the end of it, this brand new player who never picked up or seen anything of D&D before she knew exactly how to, she was going to play her Tifling Bard. She didn't even know what a Bard was before this. And she's like, no, no, I know who she is. I got this. I know mm-hmm. exactly what I'm going to play with her. And I'm like, that is the most beautiful thing that can come out of this session zero. Because something that I personally have trouble with is figuring out who my character is. It usually takes me like two or three sessions mm-hmm. to really figure it out so I can start role-playing her correctly. And... But this brand new player tells me that, oh yeah, she's got this. And that makes me so happy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, my, my players uh, used the, use the guide and we rolled and stuff. And I want to yeah, everything they rolled out of that book ended up in the campaign. Yeah. Like at some point or another, um, Tara had a prophecy. We actually sat down and made the prophecy. We made a little haiku. Um, I had... I started having characters say it and she's like, how do they know that? <laughs> um, uh, Christy was from the shadow. Her, she was found in the shadow fell as a child. Oh wow. And so I started having weird dreams and stuff show up there. And so like all of their little things that came out of Xanathar's guide, I found ways to pull in. One of them had to do with demons and that worked out really well for what I oh, wanted to do with, wa- with water. Deep. Deep. Yeah. So like I was able to actually tie that into what was happening with it. Yeah, and it was perfect because with this brand new player too, I rolled on the life events table and she's like, oh, you met someone, you have a friend. And I'm like, you know what? I know exactly who you met. She met Volo. Mm-hmm. And so she's going to go meet him yeah. in Waterdeep. <laughs> that's that's great. Yeah. Uh, and, and when you do that, it feels more like a, 
a collaboration rather than just a game that you're coming to play and you have no say in what's going on other than the choices you're presented. Yeah. When you and a player come together and start coming up with ideas like that and you're using their ideas in the story, and that could even be that they've come up with all these neat NPCs in their backstory, mm -hmm. and you take one of those and replace like a pre-written character or a character you've already had in your yeah. head for your homebrew, and you put their character in there, that is going to connect that player so much harder to the story than anything else, any magic item, any boss they fight. Yeah. And uh, while we're on that specific topic, uh, I wanted to mention uh, about implementing a character's backstory into your plot. Mm -hmm. Because uh, there's a lot of good points about it, and there's a surprising amount of bad points about it, too. Um, from a player standpoint, it's awesome. It feels so cool when it's like, oh my god, that's my thing. Mm -hmm. Like, when you when it's revealed, and I've had many moments like that as a player. I mean, uh, one of my DMs before, he literally took everybody's backstory, and there was a common thread in each one of those that none of us knew about, because he helped us build our backstory. Mm -hmm. And it was hilarious. We were going through this uh, crazy haunted mansion, and we all see the portrait of this dude on the wall, and the Eric Cooker goes, oh, this is my backstory, guys. And all of us are thinking the same thing. <laughs> we kind of side-eye him and we're like, are you sure? <laughs> because it was the same dude that we all knew. Mm -hmm. And that was a cool moment because that kind of brought us all together for that. That's a nice twist, too. I, yeah. I, I did an episode of Dungeon Driver about twists with character backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And that's a really cool one. I like that a lot. Yeah, props to Eric for that. Yeah. <laughs> Go you, Eric. Um, but, oh, man, I, I had one about that. Uh, oh, it, but the, the, the thing you got to be careful with about that is if, in that situation, that was really good because he did it for everyone. Yeah. If you're going to do it, you have to do it in some way for everyone. Otherwise, you fall into the main character problem. The pro Yeah. Uh, you'll have other players feeling like they're no longer the protagonist. Yes. If your players start feeling like they're the side characters... That's when people stop having as much fun as they could. Yeah. And also resentment starts happening. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's when things can really start... Yes. And you as the DM have the pure power to, to keep that from happening. Yes. <laughs> um, so if you're going to do, if you're going to tie someone's backstory really heavily into the campaign, you need to find ways to tie the other players into it as well. Not specifically with backstory, but in some way or another. Yeah. I mean, a great way is to, if it's a villain that's involved in their backstory, have the villain be something that the other players will be willing to go for mm -hmm. because if it's just like a personal revenge concept then the other players will be like why are we doing this again yeah. oh it's to help our friend mm -hmm. uh, okay but okay this is just for them that, that, that's why the punisher doesn't really have friends <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> it's like wait why are we doing this again they killed my family okay but like i've known you for like a day <laughs> Exactly. And to where if you have like a villain from a backstory that's big enough that the other players feel like, no, we need to stop him and we're going to help you. Well, it, like not only not just that, but like there's other ways to tie them in. Um, you can have like an important NPC take an interest in a different player. Yeah. 
where it's like it's not that they're the chosen one or something it's like oh your set of skills could really help me with something definitely or of uh, one of the villains or maybe one of the sub-villains takes an interest in one of them but you have the plot reach out to them instead of that other player where they're already there you need to start pulling everyone else into it as well Mm -hmm. and not just leave it up to them to get interested in it yeah I mean that's and you can do this of... with their backstories too. You can, yeah. it can be, you could see a hook they've left you and go, got it. Yeah. And like, that's, that's kind of what I did with Valindra. Remember how I said that they all kind of faced the lich. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> the whole campaign started with Valindra literally uh, showing up at Neverwinter and two out of my current group, uh, two of them were there. So like Saphir and Roland. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've been there since that first day versus Valindra. Valindra remembers them. Mm-hmm. So she has this personal vendetta against <laughs> them specifically. Telltale game. Valindra will remember this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but when she was in midst uh, well, conversation, so to speak, uh, she kind of pointed out saying, oh, I'm ignoring you two right now because she's way more interesting. She took down a giant single-handedly with her friggin' mind. That's something I'm interested in. And everyone was like, oh no. <laughs> yeah, that's that's cool. That's a great way to do that because that player wasn't there. Valinda doesn't know her, but she knows of her. Yeah. And she's taking an interest in her, which is great because you've pulled that player in, but then those other two that are already in are more in because like, no, why are I, I you're mine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's it's there's a lot of good points of bringing in backstories because it can pull in a player. Uh, players, mm-hmm. uh, hopefully, <laughs> into it. But but the thing that I want to add to that is you don't have to do that with every campaign. Oh, gosh, no. No. Yeah, no. You don't like, have to. Like, do it when you feel like, again, read the table. Yeah. <laughs> session zeros, read the table. That We're just going to make a bullet point list for our title now. Um, so session zeros, read the table. Okay, good, good, good. Um, but do that, and if the party doesn't seem interested in something like that, or they seem more of like, we're just here for the combat. Don't do that because if you do it too much, it's gonna be expected in every campaign you do. Yeah. And then it becomes your own trope. Yeah. Um, if you have uh, secrets in every single campaign and you're talking to players one-on-one and you're leaving the room literally to talk to people, yeah. it's like then that's gonna become the norm. Yeah, like, in a way. like I've done one, <laughs> player character that betrays the party yeah and i'm not gonna do that again for a really long time because i don't want it to be to the point where like i get a new group together and one of them's going oh i really hope i'm the betrayer or god i really don't want to be it or or they're now suspicious of everyone because they think someone at the table is going to betray them because it's my campaign yeah um but that's getting that's getting off topic yeah. The... Backgrounds. Let's go over some backgrounds. <laughs> backgrounds. Okay, so like I mentioned earlier, backgrounds are the technical aspect of your backstory. They're actually what adjust player stats. Mm-hmm. Um, through your background, you actually get a few neat things. Like, for example, you do get to fill out like your personality, your bond, and your flaw and such like that. Um, there's handy tables that let you kind of figure out what kind of matches what your background is mm-hmm. slash backstory. Which, in the end, helps you roleplay your character. Yeah. Um, it also lets the bard know what annoying instrument they're going to be uh, playing when they're barding. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, the background also, in a statistical way, uh, gives you your proficiencies uh, in both tools, vehicles, and skills, and languages. 
Um, and something that I wanted to mention is that the player's handbook uh, has a lot of these backgrounds and they're really neat. Uh, and they're even in the Sword Coast Guide too. Mm-hmm. Um, Are there some in Xanathar's? I believe so. Okay. I want to say yes. I'm not sure. Um, but they're very helpful because they're actually, they're huge blocks and they tell you like, oh, if you're an entertainer, um, you're going to be having proficient in two skills. Uh, per- specifically, you're going to be proficient in performance and deception. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay. And then you're going to be proficient with two instruments of your choice. Oh, okay, cool. All right. And there it is. And this is your equipment. Uh, all right. Neat. So that pretty much sets you up. And uh, literally in the quick build section, after, like when you're building a class, it says, choose the entertainer background for Bard. Yeah. Because it tells you just straight up, go there, choose this. And the reason why they say that is because it's the quick build. So something important that I want to point out is that a lot of people don't realize you can customize backgrounds. That is something that's very much allowed. And I always try to motivate my players to look into it because if you can customize your background to more fit your backstory, Mm -hmm. then that's all the more power to your character. Because if you're a fighter, but you know that she played the loot while she was in the war, right? And so she has proficiency in, in a loot. She should, Mm -hmm. right? But you picked the soldier background that doesn't have proficiency in an instrument. Well, you could totally give yourself one. Uh, the way that customizing backgrounds work, there's an entire section on it before the actual backgrounds, right after languages, before backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And it says like, oh yeah, it's easy. You just choose two skill proficiencies and then you choose either two tools or two languages or one tool and one language. So, and then pretty much, and then choose a feature from and equipment from mm-hmm. a background. So that way they can keep some sort of balance. Yeah. Now, you can totally disregard the equipment as well because there's even a whole entire starting wealth section in the player's handbook. And that's getting into the technical aspect of it because each like class and race has their own starting money and such. And so you can really get into like, oh no, I don't have these four daggers to start with as a rogue. I actually have this long sword and then all these other things. Yeah. And I brought 12 grappling hooks. Why? Because I need 12 grappling That's hooks. That's who I am. That's who I am. Don't call me Batman. I'm they, Batman. They, they call me <laughs> grapples. <laughs> so it's you can totally just disregard a good chunk of the actual background bits mm-hmm. <laughs> when you're choosing a background. Uh, and kind of customize it yourself. And I really, really do suggest that players go for that. Maybe not so much new players. That's what I was just about to add. Because uh, like I feel like the background section as written... And why I was so happy to see it there when I first cracked mm-hmm. open that book, it's because it's a great jumping off point. Oh yeah, no, hundred percent. If you're a brand new player and you're like, I'm a bard, I need to, I'm an entertainer. That's what I do. That's my job. I will choose the entertainer background, mm-hmm. and it's all in a neat little package for you. Yeah, you don't have to worry about anything else, and that's that. Um, if you're a experienced player and mm-hmm. you want to kind of break the mold a bit, then yeah, you could totally choose something way out of left field. Yeah. And that's something but really neat. as long as it's okay with your DM. Yeah. Always check with your yep. DM. Oh, my God. Don't just pick, like, some random thing. Like, oh, I'm a far traveler. When it's like, I thought we all agreed that we were all from this place. It's like, no, nah, I'm a far traveler. Or, or even worse, she's like, oh, yeah, I'm an acolyte. But you just completely ripped out what acolyte means and just plugged in your own stuff. Yeah. Um, but moving on into what backgrounds include, uh, one of the more 
you could say important parts of a background aside from the personality flaw bond and all that um is probably the background feature Mm -hmm. uh that really kind of lets your players play their character's strengths uh not necessarily in a stats wise uh talking but like it's kind of like what we were talking about with the magic items where it's like it lets your player do something cool yeah let your players be cool this is like their thing yeah and uh, I know a lot of players forget they even have them. Mm-hmm. But before this episode, I had to go. What is that? Yeah. <laughs> and you, t- I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I, just, I I just think about those being part of the background. I don't mm-hmm. think about what their technical name is. And a lot of times it's because there's not enough room on that first page to have that feature on there. Yeah. Even though it literally is a feature. Yeah, it says trace and features. It's one of the features. Um. So a lot of people put that on the second page and they forget about it until eventually they're like, oh wait. Wait, I have something for this. Yeah. And then they look for it frantically. Um, but I find a lot of times, like, at our one-shots at the bookstore, mm-hmm. uh, these guys and, and these kids who are like, oh, I'm only level five. I don't have a lot, but I do have my background feature. Yeah. They bring it up a lot more than people who have been playing for a long time mm-hmm. because uh, you have less cool things to play with. Yeah. And this kind of is really what makes their character theirs. Mm-hmm. Even if it's just for a one shot, it's kind of like shows off, this is who I am. Mm-hmm. And that's something else that customization allows is you get to choose any background feature. Um, I totally recommend corresponding your feature to your backstory, not to the background itself. Because uh, I'll give an example. So like uh, Roland, who is a very cool character. He is an orphan from this huge library and uh, monastery kind of deal. And uh, he kind of shows Acolyte because he's a very much like a cleric to Denier, who's god knowledge and recording knowledge specifically. Uh, but Acolytes, they have like this uh, background feature which allows them like, oh, you know, you can, you can communicate and get housing in a temple of that faith. Sure, but he was from a very specific monastery where that came from. That's not really applicable to him. Mm -hmm. And so instead, he came from a library. He chose the researcher feat from the sage instead, which really more applies to him considering he's a follower of a god of written knowledge. Yeah. A god that literally writes down and records important information. And so that really fit his character more so than not, than the acolyte background feature. So that's, I really recommend going through and just looking at the different background features because they are really fun. Um, Something else I wanted to point out is DMs. Um, If a backstory allows it, uh, definitely I would say allow multiple background features because in the end, they're really just utility. Mm -hmm. They don't do much for any kind of combat situation. And... They're really cool story elements that, again, just kind of feeds power to the to the characters. Mm-hmm. You almost said power to the player. I, I almost did. <laughs> this is a GameStop commercial now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and I'll give another example. So Twyla, who is a really neat character, she gave me this really awesome backstory. She's of a noble family from Waterdeep, but she ran away from home because she wanted to be a bard. Mm -hmm. And so because her family would be looking for her, she had to create this alternate persona, right? And so she had to make an alternate personality. And then she also had to become, she's a good bard too. Like when she started playing with us, she was a little 10. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, she's from noble descent. So that right there, if you're familiar with the player's handbook, 
background features. That's three of them. Mm -hmm. There's charlatan background feature, which pretty much allows you to have a second alter ego, like an alternate identity, uh, which also allows you to forge documents and copy letters and such like that. There's the entertainer background feature, which allows you to uh, stay for free, room and board, at any inn you like, as long as you play for them, essentially, provide entertainment. And then there's the noble background, which allows you to grant access to higher people, like nobles or kings and courts, that normal people wouldn't get access to simply because of your birthright. Mm -hmm. I gave her pretty much all three. Maybe not officially on paper, but... I gave her all three yeah. in game because her backstory warranted it. Yeah. It totally allowed for it. And I, I really recommend playing with that as a DM because it makes things a lot of fun. I, I honestly, I never thought of doing that. I yeah. might give it a shot at some point. Um, it'd be a rare thing. Because, mm-hmm. like, I know you're saying, like, it's not overpowered stuff like that, but I do feel like it could... It's one of those things just like, oh, that person's so much better than that person. Yeah. And but like she did her due diligence and made a really good backstory that warranted those. And to be fair, that she did come in halfway through a campaign. She came in at level ten. Yeah. And so in a weird way she had a little bit of catching up to do. That's true. Even though she's the same level as the other guys. That's true. Uh she didn't like, so to speak, earn her magic items. She was kinda like Oh these no. are these are magic items that I had to give you so you're not like completely underwhelmed. The, the, and, I don't I don't believe in earning magic items. Yeah, no, but it's like, so she kind of, I, I wanted to give her those things because her backstory completely warranted it. Like, background features can even come, I feel like, in the middle of a campaign, too. Mm-hmm. Because if you're realizing that actually this would work for this oh, character. Yeah. Um, and it can be like a one-time thing. That's like, still like a pretty good idea of like using background features in that way. Yeah. Instead of it just being the stagnant kind of like, oh, yeah, you also get this. Yeah. And, um, I mean, that's what Eric did for me when I was playing my wizard. Mm. She is a natural born researcher. She did that on her free time. That's what she wanted to do with her life. So she had the sage background feature. She was good at researching things. Um, But because she came from this poor background, essentially like a pauper-esque background, she really kind of dressed herself up in multiple skirts and she held herself high and she like really presented herself as a noble situation Mm -hmm. even though she's the complete opposite of it eric as a dm basically gave my character the noble background where i was able to get access to noble character like Mm -hmm. npcs if there was someone that was going to be talking to the mayor or the king of a town it would be my character. Mm-hmm. Even though she's the poorest of poor, and her background essentially is just like, oh, from just completely terrible. She was the one that presented herself as that way, mm-hmm. so she got that. It, I, I will add to this that it, giving those out, or even at the beginning where players just you know get one or something like that, it's good to keep those in mind. Like, mm-hmm. if you're going to ever do a situation where you're like, oh, well, I want it to be hard for... Like, they get robbed. They don't have any money. Where are they going to stay? And then you have the bar just go, oh, I'm just going to play something. I'm just, I'm just gonna and play. that kind of ruined your best laid plans. <laughs> you you got to remember those because, like, yeah. uh, they, they... Yeah, they're not important in combat. But if you... If your players have them and you don't remember them and you plan, plan something around them get not being able to do something and they can just do it because of their background feature, it's good to keep that in mind. Definitely. I mean, it's 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 another thing to keep a little bit of track of because mm-hmm. 
as a DM, you're kind of keeping track of a, a few things that your players got going on. A few? Yeah, just a few. <laughs> just a like, few. Oh, when did I when did I give you that scroll? <laughs> oh, like in the second session. Oh. Oh, you guys are level seven. Oh. Oh, oh I didn't. Oh. Oh boy. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but, <laughs> but definitely, I think backgrounds are very much uh, something that you can completely use, uh, especially in session zero. Mm. Uh, spend a little bit more time on them, especially if you're. Ex- Pretty much only if you're an experienced player. I suggest, really, if you're a newbie, stick to the... Well, you, you, I just want to talk about this real quick. You yeah. left out the other type of person. The person that just makes a character and then just grabs whatever background, gives them the skill they want because they don't know about customizing. Because then you have the fighter that has the charlatan background and they just got <laughs> it because they wanted a skill. And then you know that and go, oh... So uh, this person walks into the tavern, walks up to you and slaps you across the face and accuses you of stealing all of their money. Yep, yep. Because yeah. then you can have fun with that. <laughs> yeah, you totally can. And <laughs> that, and that, and that's just a, a little way of like how their background, not just their backstory, can tie into yeah. the campaign. Because uh, the background and the backstory, they're, they're different hands of the same person. And that would be a great pacing moment. Yeah, for sure. Uh, You got anything else on backgrounds and backstories? I think I pretty much said everything in there. All right. Well, we're running long on time, but we're going to do a couple quick listener emails. Uh, These people, uh, Dusty and Matt, wrote into difficultyclass at gmail.com, just like you can with uh, any kind of question that you might have about D&D that either you think only we can answer or you just don't want to Google at the time. Um... (laughs) So Dusty asks, hey, uh, do you think the uh, the Essentials Kit is worth the value and also the time to actually find one at a Target? I, I love the second part of that question. Yes, because <laughs> as I learned, not all Targets like to stock them when they have them. Yeah, at this current point in time, uh, it's still in a Target exclusive. Yes, it is a Target exclusive yeah. until September of 2019. Yeah, um, it's $25. Yep. Uh, we did a whole episode on it. A lot of ups and downs, I would say, um, but Personally, for me, I would say it's worth it. Yeah. But I'm also the type of person that I love maps. I love uh, those little adventures. And especially for my campaign, that adventure would be really neat. If you are already into D&D and you just like stuff, 100% recommend buying yeah. Essentials. <laughs> yeah. And, and we, we also did talk about that other type of person, the person that watches Critical Role and has never played it before but knows a it's bunch about D&D. A great intro for, for them. them. Uh, but for du- for you, Dusty, I mean, I know you, so I'm kind of cheating here. I, I, um, <laughs> I, yeah, I think you should get it. I think this would be great for you and Steph to run at, yeah. uh, at the, the game store. And it's got plenty of, of stuff in there for you to do. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think that it's I think it's worth it. I think it's totally worth it for beginning level D&D people. Too, now, the but... hunt at Target. Yeah. <laughs> I would say if you're at a Target and they have it or you ask them if they have it, that's about as far as you should go. They're going to get more of these in. They're not making it exclusive for one week. Yeah. And it's not coming out again until September. This is going to keep being in stock. Just try it while you're there. Yeah. Me, I kind of went out of my way and went to a Target I don't normally go to. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily like like hunt one down. I would just, if it's there mm-hmm. and I have the money for it, I would get it. <laughs> also, I will say in the value thing, the D&D Beyond thing is still clutch. Yeah, definitely. Uh, as far as the $25 value of it entirely, you get a whole cool set of dice. Mm-hmm. You get a whole adventure in the, and a half, essentially. Mm-hmm. You get some cool new rules with like the sidekicks and stuff. Yeah. And you also get a cool map. 
uh, double-sided mm-hmm. for both the adventure and in general the Sword Coast, which is like the base area yeah. 5e is in. And I, I think just yeah, the, money-wise alone... The 50% off code for the Player's Handbook, plus you get the adventure in D&D Beyond for free. Yeah. Where at, normally you'd have to pay 10 bucks for the adventure on D&D Beyond. Not to mention the price of the Player's Handbook. Yeah. And <laughs> if you can't tell, I really love D&D Beyond. And even though they and Idle Champions don't sponsor the show, I'm going to keep telling you to use them because I fucking love them. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, oh, By the way, definitely. Walnut Dengrass is in Idle Champions right now. Yes. She's really good. <laughs> She's so good. Um, all right. Our next uh, listener mail comes from Matt. Uh, it says, hey, difficulty class, Matt again. Question is, how often does D&D change additions? How long since 4E was standard and how long until 6E comes around? Uh, additionally, what is the biggest change in additions? Whew, I don't think I actually read that second part. Uh, <laughs> it's okay, I got an answer for that one. <laughs> okay, well, so let, let, let's do a quick history lesson. Yeah. So original OG Dungeons and Dragons, the one that Gary Gygax and all of them made. Um, by the way, before I do this, I'm actually going to plug uh, Art and Arcana. Yes. Um, it is a big, <laughs> fat book of D&D history. Because it says it's Art and Arcana, but that Arcana part is literally background and history on D&D. Mm-hmm. Like, they're showing you all this artwork of old editions and stuff, but it is so lovingly written about what, that, what came to be with that stuff. Yeah. I really recommend looking at it. But... Uh, Gary Gygax and all of them made the original Dungeons and Dragons in 1974. Oh man! Yeah, three pamphlets. Uh, literally, like you go to like church and you get like what's going on that uh, <laughs> that that time. That is what they had for yeah. a D and D manual. Um, uh, three years later, in 1977, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons came out. That's where we got to the nice hardcover books. And we just saw a couple of those. Yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah. one of our players, uh, you can see on uh, the Instagram, at Difficulty Podcast, uh, one of our players brought in the first monster manual. It straight up looks like a textbook. It looks like a textbook, <laughs> and it looks like it is drawn by children. Yeah. And I love it. I love it. <laughs> I love it so much. The owlbear looks like a thing from my nightmares. Um, and uh, so that that's where we got into those hardcover books and where like we started getting more stores uh advanced Dungeons and dragons 2 came out in 1989 so 12 years after that um, it's been around for a while it's been around for a while and I, I didn't realize that came out a year after i was born um <laughs> and this is where like it started the artwork started getting more detailed the rules was <laughs> we got thaco and all that stuff um and still to this day like i have a coworker that swears by second edition mm-hmm. um and uh so then in 2000 uh third edition came around three years after that 3.5 came around and you might be asking yourself what's the difference between third edition and 3.5 and i'll tell you i don't know um <laughs> but everyone prefers 3.5 over third edition there um i know that a lot of stuff was changed math wise and some class wise like literally they re-released the player's handbook the dungeon master's guide and the monster manual three years later because they need crazy. to fix stuff. It is, I cannot imagine them doing that now. No. But we'll get into that in a little bit. Yeah. So eight years after that, 2008, fourth edition came around. Mm-hmm. This is the big spot of contention in the D&D community. Yeah. Because either you love it or you hate it. Not many people are like on the fence about it. Yeah. It is just like, no, that was the worst thing to happen. Or, <laughs> you know what? I, I really liked that one. Yeah. Um, then in 2014 came fifth edition, which was what we are currently on now. Um, there are very large differences between uh, most of these editions. 
Second edition to third edition is very different. Third edition to fourth edition is night and day. And fourth edition to fifth edition is just as big a jump. Yeah. Um, the only thing that I really want to talk about is fourth edition. Mm-hmm. Um, the major differences and kind of almost why they happened. I will say I want to do a topic about fourth edition Ooh. coming up. Yeah. Because right. we're um, I, at some point we're going to do an adventure series in fourth edition. So I want to talk about it. Perfect. First. Yes. yes. Then uh, I will just say there are reasons <laughs> why fourth edition was very different from third and why fifth edition is very different from fourth. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could find a few of these diff- reasons essentially just kind of hinted at in the player's handbook and in yeah. the dungeon master's guide. Well, like bonus actions were kind of left over from fourth edition with yeah. minor actions. And um, the but the biggest thing is that fourth edition played more like a board game. Yeah. Um, which is going to be really interesting to see if I actually go through and do that <laughs> in that adventure series. And I mean, like, Jeremy Crawford, who's like the current, basically the director at D&D right now, his biggest saying is, follow your bliss. Mm-hmm. And that's the fifth edition, like, yeah. tagline. Follow your bliss. Is this what makes you happy? Do it. Yeah. Uh, he recently just tweeted, is a life-changing economy make you and your group happy? Go for it. Yeah. But the rules will not help you on that because yeah. I don't want to, that's not on me. <laughs> Um, but, uh, when you ask about what, uh, how far are we from sixth edition, who knows? Um, I personally feel like we're pretty far away from it. Um, even though, you know, it is five years into this, um, this edition and, you know, fourth edition lasted eight years, which was pretty short or or not. Oh no. Third edition lasted eight years and, uh, fourth edition lasted, was that six years? Yeah. Um, so you know, we're getting pretty high up in there as far as some of the editions go, but then some of the older ones last longer. Big difference is third edition and fourth edition were just piled on with bulk. Yeah. Where there, it was, there was almost a book a month. It was oversaturated almost. And it was. each book cost money. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I mean, in third edition, you had splat books, which were little soft covers that were like 20 bucks a pop. And it was like, this one's got new feats and uh, new subclasses and stuff like that. And, and before it, you know it, your bookcase is about to fall over. There's so many in well, there. Well, not just that, but when you start a new character, your first level human has 400 feats to go through. Yeah. Um, so... It, it, <laughs> Yeah. Pathfinder. <laughs> yeah. Pathfinder. Um, so because fifth edition changed that style and we only get two books a year. Yeah. We get some kind of supplement. Um, and even those have been like, like we got salt marsh this year instead of a supplement. Yeah. We got, we, and we had tales of the awning portal, which was more just tiny adventures. Yeah. But then we've had tale, uh, we've had a sword coast adventures guide. We had Xanathar's guide, a Volo's guide, um, and then at the end of the year, we get a nice big campaign book. Yeah. Which I think there's, there's a good reason why they're pacing it out, which I, I remember reading that for one, it's good for Adventures League mm-hmm. because it actually allows them time to go through the yes. adventures, um, at their pace yes. too, pacing. And it's, it's better than just going through a new adventure a month. Because when you you do want to appreciate the books that you've just spent a lot of money on, mm-hmm. not to mention you want to appreciate the time you have with your friends yeah. playing these campaigns. I mean, I've been playing Sword King Thunder for a long time now, and I'm still having fun with it, and yeah. my players are too. Yeah. And I know that there are other campaigns out right now, but there's not like 20 of them to choose from. Yeah. And because of I have, this is going to sound weird, but because of the little options I have as far as pre-written stuff goes. 
the more free I feel mm-hmm. in choosing which one to do. Well, it also makes them feel like big events. Yeah, uh, talking about pacing again, mm-hmm. uh, it makes each one feel like there's a reason behind mm-hmm. it. Um, like the Tiamat concept, like pretty much every book is almost connected to that event happening. Yeah, and that's what kicked everything off. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. The um, Now, as much as I say I feel 6th edition is far ways away, I won't be surprised if 5.5 happens. Oh, really? Yes. You know, I can see that because I've, I've been seeing on Twitter and on other places where uh, big D&D directors are talking about, like, slight changes. I mean, Unearth Arcana comes out every month. The the I kind of feel like a 5.5 is going to happen in terms of player side. Yeah. Um, because the monsters are so different from how players act changing bonus actions or class features and stuff like that isn't going to affect the monster. So you don't, you can still have the books of fifth edition as is, but you could do a 5.5 player's handbook where it's like, this is how players are run now. This is how we're going to do adventure league and all that stuff. Yeah. And that's all you need to do. And it would still easily fit in with all the campaigns. It would. And redoing those things I think will if we ever get to a point where 5th edition is hitting a lull which we are not no um, yeah, we they are uh, good pace <laughs> 2018 actually saw I think it was a quadruple in sales of the starter kit yeah so in that regard no we're not switching editions anytime soon there could be a point five coming out but I don't think that's going to be in the next couple of years honestly I, I would probably say minimum another 5 yeah 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 well, uh, that's all the listener questions I got. Yeah. I, I feel like I feel like that was a good one, though. I gave you a little history lesson there, Matt. Definitely. <laughs> well, thank you guys for sending in those questions. That was our show for this week. If you enjoyed it, please consider leaving a review on whatever podcast service you're using and tell your friends about the show. If you'd like to have your question read on the show, you can send those into difficultyclass at gmail or uh, into our Twitter, difficultyclass, or Instagram, at difficultypodcast, if you like. But until next time, don't get killed by the Demogorgon.